Hey, what's up? This is Josh from Goldroom, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast where rock and roll meets the occult. For those of you that don't know me, I do a lot of stuff. I'm a dancer, actor, tarot reader, and a best selling author with eight books out. I got one on the way, too. Look for my new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch, on Punk Hostage Press. You might have seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. In fact, look for me in the new GoGo stock. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, please go to pleasantgaiman.com or check out my Instagram, Princess of Hollywood. All one word, baby. I post there a lot. I'm really happy to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Everyone at Pantheon tells stories about the music we love so much. There's like 50 podcasts. Find them all on Pantheon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.com, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend. Or I'll put a spell on you, baby. Mr. Crowley, what went on in your head? This is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, my guest is the esteemed author and cultural critic and magical human, Peter Biebergal. He's author of one of my favorite books, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, and Strange Frequencies, a book about searching for the occult on modern technology. Hey, Peter, how are you doing? Good. Hello, Pleasant. Thanks for having me. Been a fan. It was so great to connect with you on the social media world. I've met so many amazing people with with social media over the years. I mean, it's really been quite a way for like-minded folks to make the connections that I think had been hard in many ways, you know, prior. We had like our local communities and things, but to just find out there were so many amazing weirdos that, you know, that I've had deep 
bonds with I've never met in person. I know it's it's absolutely insane. It's it's completely insane. I've I've become friends with people like from all over the world and um people send me crazy stuff. I mean like amazing crazy stuff and presents. Like I just recently um uh, well over the over the past like year, I guess sort of semi connected with um this wonderful amazing woman um and you know through through podcasts and through instagram and all this stuff she wound up giving me the first witchcraft book i ever got when i was 13 and i lost it somewhere throughout the decades and i talked about it a couple of times on different shows um potions and spells of witchcraft i just i just got it she just mailed it to me last week and i burst into tears when um when I got it and I opened it up to like, like, like it just fell open to my favorite page. So, I mean, and then when I, when I read it, I realized, wow, this book was like really the foundation of my modern life. <laughs> Do you remember where you bought it? I bought it through mail order. I put a bunch of um, like dollar bills and a piece of onion skin typing paper. I don't remember where it came from, but I probably saw it like in the, in the back, um, advertised in the back of like Cream Magazine, because they right. used to have all sorts of crazy, crazy shit, you know, back there yep. that wasn't only rock and roll. I'm pretty sure that's probably where it came from. Yeah, they had, yeah, Rolling Stone didn't have good classified ads like that. You had to go to Cream or some of the others to find the, the weird stuff, other fanzines and other magazines and things. Yeah, or like Rock Scene. Do you remember Rock Scene? Oh, yeah. So yeah and, there was, yeah, and then for my generation, it was a little, uh, it was a lot of the, um, it was like Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll, and you know that's when I was coming of age, reading, reading music yeah. magazines. It was the, the punk fanzines of the early eighties. Yeah, that was that was also that was also one of my generations. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we're the same. Hey, I, I'm going to be fifty four next week, so. I'm your elder. I'm gonna be. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna be 62, which I, okay. I fucking can't believe. <laughs> yeah, but, it's weird. yeah, I know it's weird. I don't feel like it. I still feel like I'm like you know some. I feel like I'm a 13 year old shoplifting clothes to go to my first Alice Cooper concert. So, <laughs> um, so anyway. I just want to, I've got so many questions for you because you're like, um, yeah, you're, you embody like everything that, that I've been interested in for forever. So like, I mean, I want to find out like, like how you got into a cult and rock and roll and if it went hand in hand initially and, you know, like where you grew up, just, just all that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, in the suburbs in, well, I, I, when I, at the time was in Framingham, Massachusetts. So, in, you know, near Boston, west of Boston, I have f- three older siblings and I was the, we were all pretty far apart. So my oldest sister is 10 years older than me um, and my brother seven years older than me. And so I, I always felt like I was sort of, and another sister is five years older, I always felt like I a little bit was growing up in a house of adults doing a weird adult things and for 
my brother especially, it was, you know, when I was six and seven and he was 14 and 15 and he was smoking cigarettes and wearing his denim jacket and, you know, and boots and listening to and working on his motorcycle and listening to music. It was the music that I was so immediately it wasn't even just attracted to it. Like, Oh, this sounds cool. There was something really seductive about what I heard sort of coming from his room. Once in a while, he would let me sort of enter into his domain. I could sit at my brother's feet, you know, and he would pull out records and he would intentionally play things that he thought would scare me. So I think one of the first things I heard in my brother's room was revolution nine from the white album. Um, and then he oh yeah, that's scary. That sounds backwards. Really now. scary. Yeah, yes. <laughs> still yeah. get scared um, by it. <laughs> oh, and then I mean, when you're seven, you know, um, he played uh, he played Diamond Dogs for me, which has a lot of really weird, scary stuff on it. Um, some of the Alice, I mean, a lot of it was more even than just the music. It was the images on the album covers. So you know, Alice Cooper's music isn't that scary, but he looked scary to me and so it all became of a of a piece of the way i saw rock and roll and i also knew even at a young age there was something erotic about it i couldn't quite name it but i knew that there was something about bodies and fleshiness and all of that um but at that age right a, a parallel to being able to kind of secretly glean this mysterious music that my brother listened to that was so different from the Bay City Rollers and my Snoopy vs. the Red Baron uh, 45 <laughs> that I played on my little Fisher-Price turntable, you know. I was also obsessed at a very young age, and my parents were always very good about sort of helping me be a consumer of these things, was monsters and monster movies. Oh, my God, me too. That, like, so, Creature Double was, Feature. Like, yep, yep. Um, I actually was able to, I was thinking recently and I was able to trace back when I fell in love with monsters. And in uh, Massachusetts, um, there was a place called, Nanta there still is Nantasket Beach. And there was an amusement park called Paragon Park. And they had one of those haunted house rides called uh, Crazy Castle with a K, right? <laughs> and I, something about, you know, being on that ride and, you know, the monsters popping out and the ghostly sounds and all the weird um, hall of mirrors and all that stuff. That was the moment I think I fell in love with the uncanny, right? With sort of the ways in which things that were kind of scary could also be enchanting rather than like being completely horrified, but actually being, um, Alluring. Alluring and, and excited. I was excited by it. And then, next, you know, I, I found Creature Double Feature and um, all, all the great UHFs. I miss, I have to say, I really miss the wonder of being a kid and being up late at night or early in the morning and exploring UHF TV. Oh, my God. Yeah, UHF was amazing. Let, let's tell that to people because I think some people listening to this probably don't even know what the fuck UHF is. <laughs> right. I mean, how explain? So, I mean, you had your major networks 
and they had a local affiliates. Um, so, you know, Channel 4 might have been NBC. And so you get your local news, but you also just get the broadcast stations. And that was VHF, right? In yeah. the regular dial of your TV. But then there were the high numbers, which were UHF, which were completely local, independent television stations that were not connected to any larger national affiliate, were usually pretty broke. And so we're often dependent on like really cheap, licensable material, which often meant crappy old horror movies. And always that, always. And that was the best you could stay up all night watching. All night, yeah. And it was like the creeping terror. Did you ever oh, see that? Oh, yes. That was amazing. Wasn't that a quarter mass movie? One of the quarter mass? I don't even remember, but I do yeah. remember being so high on acid the first time I watched it. That <laughs> when the when the creeping terror was trying to devour, like you know the the ingenue in the movie. Oh yeah, it was like a fucking cardboard box with carpet scraps on it and vacuum cleaner hoses, and she, she was like, <laughs> she was she was like kicking and screaming, and pulling. Pulling herself, like visibly pulling oh, herself yes, exactly. into it because like they couldn't, they didn't even have enough money to make like something that, you know, would have like a little conveyor on it or something. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you got all this great, you also got a lot of, I mean, it wasn't quite cable access, you know, it was a little bit more than that, but we had also, um, we had it, something called, we had channel 38. Um, and one of the amazing things about Channel 38 was there was this, they had a show called Movie Loft and they would show feature films uncut. So when I was a kid, I got to see on television without commercials, unedited, Taxi Driver, um, uh, um, uh, what's the one about the, um, uh, the male prostitute in New York City, Midnight Cowboy. Oh, yeah. Helter Skelter, you know, all of that. And I have to say, you know, around that age, it all starts to blur into a sensibility that the world is strange and weird and and haunted by something, you know. Sex, I mean, you, sex and death. Yeah, sex and death, exactly. Um, and I was just so turned on by it all. And... I love that, again, that mix of fear and wonder that sort of accompanied it. And and then, you know, I just grew up as a typical nerdy kid. I um, played Dungeons and Dragons and was obsessed with fantasy and science fiction. And when I was probably, I'm going to say 12 or 13, I... But maybe maybe a little bit older. I drew. I I got on the bus for the first time by myself and went um, from the North Shore where I lived at that time to Salem, Massachusetts. And I went to Lori Cabot's bookshop, the famous. I love Lori Cabot. Went to Lori Cabot's bookshop, and there was. I don't know how I even had heard of this book or what I was looking for, but I bought two books with my own money. I bought a book called. Um, I think it was called white magic or white witchcraft um no it was called positive witchcraft that was what it was called about that book and i bought a book um which would completely change my 
life, even though I never actually cast any of the spells from it, which is the key of Solomon the King. Which wow. is the very famous, infamous medieval grimoire, um, which details the you know, conjuration binding of heavenly, angelic, demonic beings, um, and all the attendant rituals necessary to, you know, deal with them. And I, you know, I poured over these books. They really started to, um, I think in many ways, like sort of change, you know, the, the synapses in my head. Um, and around that time, I started to become very isolated. I, we had moved. And so I didn't have a lot of friends. I became sort of isolated, you know, in my own, I had like one best friend that I played, you know, Stratego with every day. And that was, you know, that was it. And that, so my life was sort of about reading about the occult, listening to um, some of the records that my brother finally, you know, gave me um, and reading monster magazines and watching monster movies. And then something really mysterious happened. I was in the computer lab of my high school. I was in ninth, maybe ninth grade, 10th grade. And, you know, still didn't have a lot of friends, picked on a lot, kept, you know, my hair was really greasy and long and I just kind of kept to myself. And my brother had turned, was starting to turn me on to also to some better music. I'd listened to Devo and U2, early U2 a little bit and XTC and was sort of getting a feel that there was like things beyond even um, the more mainstream rock and roll. And I, somebody had on college radio, Salem State College, college radio, WMWM. And a song came on by a local Boston band called the FUs hardcore punk band from the 80s and that moment completely changed my life i had never heard anything like that and it made me understand and and in the pursuit of punk rock as a way of life exposed me to fringe culture writ large you know, because I didn't know that even you two, while it was new, it was new music. It was still on MTV's, you know, um, you could still watch their videos on MTV. So I knew it still wasn't that far from the mainstream, even though it felt edgy. No pun intended for you two. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for something like the FUs and then again, furthering, you know, having to sort of educate myself, starting to go to shows, meeting people, everything changed for me. I changed the way I looked. I started to meet girls. I couldn't meet girls really in my hometown because nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. I was too weird. Um, when I finally had a girlfriend from there, she also was somebody who was into punk. Um, and so, Within, I would say, the transition to 14 to 15 from isolated, nerdy, scared, anxious kid who loved every, anything weird, um, my life became as weird, but completely fueled by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and so 
you know, join, join the club. You join right? <laughs> exactly. Right. And Wait, let's, get, let's take a little music. Let's take a little break here to listen to some music. And then, and then of course, you know, we're getting into the shit that everyone wants to hear. Right. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Hang on one second. You guys will be right back with Peter Biebergall and find out everything dark and sick about him. <laughs> Let's hear about all the sex and drugs and rock and roll and um, sex, magic, drugs and rock and roll. Exactly. I mean, so that was all of a piece, right? Because when I started to have those extreme sort of, um, you know, consciousness experiences, because I was already interested in all the stuff that had fueled my adolescent mind um, prior to that, I just went back to that when I was looking for um, a map to the things that I was experiencing when I was stoned, right? So now reading a books on the occult just had a completely different flavor. And so it, it started to have a meaning for me that really felt um, like I was going to be able to construct some kind of cosmology in which my own experiences could map onto. Um, I started reading Carlos Castaneda. I started reading Eastern mysticism, I Ching, doing tarot cards. And I have to say, but you know, 15 to about 18 were, were still some of the best years of my life. Um, I had more fun. I got to see incredible bands here in Boston. My first show was, uh, was probably in 1981, 82. My first hardcore show was Dead Kennedys and DOA at a VFW hall here in Waltham with five other Boston bands. I think it was like $5, you know, to get in. What a moment, you know, to, what a privilege to have been able to have been alive at that moment and to have experienced that. Um, yeah, like that electricity in those rooms. I mean, you yeah. can see like videos or hear like board mixes you know, not that there's a lot of them from that time period, but anybody that wasn't there really sort of can't imagine what that what the energy was like in those rooms. I mean, it, it was just fucking nuts. So it, it, it like whether you were on drugs or not, and most people were, but uh, yeah, I mean, it felt like it just you know it it felt like like transcendent it, you could you could literally like feel the air crackling yeah i mean we were like dancing and there was a mosh pit but the moment that jello started singing like before the song even started he yells out nazi punks fuck off yeah and the room just explodes um and you know so those experiences the transcendent nature of those experiences with or without drugs is you know um 
I think is is primary in many ways to some of the things that I talk about in 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 season of the witch, right? Which is um, that um, it, it's not just Dionysian because there's a frenzy of movement and music and sound. It's Dionysian because it's about a group initiatory experience, right? There's, there's, there's a shared transcendence that takes place. We call things Dionysian, say, because everybody's drunk, but that's not what it's about. It's about something else. It's about, um, I think, an, our, our change in consciousness that happens at that kind of, um, you know, at the, at the level of the crowd, energized by the musicians. They them, It's a feedback loop. Yeah, it's right. like an it's like an altered state a lot of yeah, times, you know. Exactly. Um, what when you were um, what were your favorite like? I mean, I I remember when I um, started realizing about all the mysticism that was going on in rock and roll, even even pre punk, and then some of it I didn't even understand about or know about people until after punk, but. Um, when, you know, like all the rumors about Led Zeppelin and Aleister Crowley and then just all the um, cursey shit, you know, curses and yeah. um, like, what, did you know about that stuff before punk rock or did you find it out? Because when I started seeing all those connections too, I was absolutely fascinated. I mean, it seemed like, especially at that point, like in the 70s for me going on into the 80s with you, there was so so much occult stuff going on in rock and roll that it seemed to me like insane that a lot of people weren't noticing it. I mean, maybe there was like, you know, thousands of people noticing it, but we didn't know about it because of social media, but right. it, it just seemed like one big crazy ass, witchy, haunted, curse throwing, like family with altered substances that were making really good music. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we only saw the extremes of it when, you know, there was the preacher who was preaching against something or the rumors of, you know, uh, uh, backward masking of records. But even, you know, I saw that 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 rumor darkness. Even, I mean, it was it looks silly now, but in the 70s as a kid to have my brother like show me record by record song by song the clues that paul mccartney was really dead no i remember that we were a freak we were show obsessed with that too and uh, all the subliminal shit like on the yeah. side pepper cover and all, oh all, the, like, all the clues but i used to try to um i used to try to well actually this is weird that you're mentioning backwards masking because just a couple of weeks ago um with somebody we were we went through like a period of an hour or two trying to talk like backward asking. <laughs> That's really funny. Like, wait, let's just conduct it. It's like it. Charlie Brown. It's actually a little bit like the Charlie Brown adults. Yeah, or, or like how you talk with a fucking pandemic face mask now. Right. <laughs> Right, exactly. You exactly. could be all, I, I, I could be at a store and I'm really just backward masking like an entire spell, just saying like, um, do you accept that we accept <laughs> right. my, my EDD unemployment card? <laughs> like, what's <laughs> this? That's amazing. 
And, you know, even when you did, I mean, that's also gets to sort of the ways in which I think particularly the 70s, we were rock and roll still had that enchanted quality. It was easy to find something even when there wasn't something. And, you know, I think that, look, I'm going to sound like the grumpy 54 year old, right? But Go I agree, for it, man. We need to know, teach these yeah. fucking whippersnappers a thing or two about witchcraft and rock yeah. and roll. I mean, I really think there was something magical happening, particularly in the 1970s with rock and roll that is, you could never duplicate it. You could never do it again. You could never, I mean, even now, you could look just. Google, uh, go on YouTube, watch a video of Robert Plant um, and Jimmy Page in like 1973 or 74. Just watch that. You could never capture that again without it seeming contrived or um, put on, right? Or you would say that it's a an homage or a pastiche. But so that's a definition of magic for me. Like, like a show like that and I'll and I'll define it for you now. So Crowley defines magic I'll paraphrase, right? Magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will. Okay. And then Dion Fortune the yeah. would would later give a little bit of a gloss on that. Magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in consciousness according to will. But I think that something like that, like Led Zeppelin in the 70s, and, and even more so, I think, Bowie as a prime example of this, is where their art is actually causing change to occur in the world according the to will. entire fucking world, yeah. Entire world, right? Now, it's fine to just say, well, that's what art does, but that's what art does. I mean, this is the whole thing that the um, novelist and comic writer Alan Moore talks a lot about, that art and magic are completely synonymous because- I've, I've always thought that. Com right, completely. it's a transformative moment that actually something that wasn't there is now there and it, it changes reality. Um, the thing about Bowie, I think that was most profound especially in, in his 70s incarnations, is that you are also witnessing these alchemical transformations of his own self. Yeah, as much as, right? from like, like people were just, just saying he was an actor, but I mean, you could tell he was, he was so invested in this. It wasn't like playing a part, you know? Right. And, and he, and he, you know, he executed all of it so amazingly. And each album was completely different. Like I remember even, um, okay, so the the first um, trifecta of uh, albums, actual record albums that I shoplifted, <laughs> which was uh, not no easy feat, but uh, Imagine. I, I grew up in New England, so I had a big snorkel parka on. the The first three records I shoplifted, I did it only because of their covers. I had no idea what they sounded like, and it. It was Aladdin Sane and Raw yes. Power and the New York Dolls album, the first one. And those are like still my Amazing. favorite albums. But I just looked at like like Iggy's face on it or like that beautiful picture like of Bowie with like the lightning bolt and the teardrops yes. congealing yes. like on his clavicle. And, and then you hear Drive-In Saturday and you realize your whole life makes sense. 
Yes. <laughs> but I mean, also like um, Aladdin saying like with all those, with all, and how each, um, how each song had like a city attached to it, yes. you know? I mean, and, and it just, it, it, Mike Garson's piano on that just felt like ghost music. It was so yes. fucking ethereal, beautiful. It was, I mean, I could just, I could just babble on about this for ages. No, but that's the stuff, right? And so, and I do think that that is also another, let's play the, you know, you, you kids get off my lawn, is that the physical, and people are, people have been waxing nostalgic about this forever, but let's talk about it in terms of the way we're talking about magic. The album cover, you know, as an artifact, as this place in which you didn't just listen to the record, right? The, the album cover, whether it had, whether it actually contained it or not, uh, held clues to something. Totally, like Houses of the Holy, like like right. you know, like by Led Zeppelin, or or all all of those things. It it had it had like visual cues, and it had like subliminal suggestions, whether or not it was um, intended. There was that whole remember that book, Subliminal Seduction, that came out in the late oh 60s, yes, of course, yeah. I mean, I I did like spend um, all my time like looking at like you know, booze ads in Playboy, trying to see the naked woman in the ice cubes or, but, but when I, when I, when I would look at album covers, like I felt, or even like shit that was written in the mastering and the grooves. At oh, the of end, course. Yes. Drop, like they yes. Always, as soon as I found out that people wrote stuff there, I tore open every album I had to see what was written. And if it wasn't always, written, I felt so disappointed. That's right. I'll tell you a little story, which you might know from the from season of the witches. Um, I got to talk to this producer named Terry Manning, and he was one of the engineers um, on Led Zeppelin three. And Led Zeppelin three is has the 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 grooved um, area where um, do what thou will. Yeah. Jimmy Page insisted that that be uh, carved. And and Terry at the time was worried about it. He was worried that they were going to ruin the master disc and he didn't want to do it. And they had to carefully lay it down on the platinum and, you know, and, and engrave it in. And that record went out to, you know, however many thousands and thousands of people. And later he said in the 90s, Terry Manning was home watching TV and he came across like the 700 club and he saw the, the TV preacher up there. And he was talking about the ruination of the youth by the, de the devil in rock and roll. And he held up Led Zeppelin three as an example and took out the album and showed the thing where it says, has the Crowley quote on it. And Terry Manning said, he just thought to himself, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all my fault. Yeah. <laughs> he was the one that inscribed it on the tablet. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I, I, I just love all that shit. Um, so what do you think about um, like hallucinogenics and rock and roll? Um, I mean, like, were you, did you take a lot of hallucinogenics as I did? Yes. And it sort of gets back to sort of part of that story for me, which is that 
you know, those early years were great and I had magical and crazy experiences. But by the time using hallucinogens, smoking a lot of pot, a lot of pot, you know, <laughs> um, drinking pills, the whole thing. But by the time I was 19, 20, things started to go pear shaped for me. And I sort of jokingly now have called myself a failed mystic um, because it seemed like the, 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 the closer I thought I was getting to whatever perfect transcendent moment I thought I was going to get to via sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the, actually the further it was getting away from me to the point where by the time I was 21, I was sort of, um, I was a mess with it, you know, and I had to stop. And I don't, that's does not everybody's experience. You know, I know that, that it isn't. And it's, I'm sometimes, I mean, I'm happy about the way my life turned out, obviously, but there still is a little bit of, um, a little bit of sorrow that I did. It, it didn't work for me in the ways that I had thought that it could. And I also think that it's true for a lot of us, especially in that age, we had the experiences and I had some great acid experiences for sure. But, you know, we also, um, you know, I was dropping acid furtively behind the mall in the suburbs. So, you know, there wasn't a ritual community way in which to make sense of those experiences to map them to any kind of spiritual identity or ethical living, right? It was just about tripping balls. And so if, you know, I had this idea because I, you know, because of just the way my whole life was up to that point, that there was some spiritual significance to it all, but I could never find it with it. it but my sort of the trick, the trick for me, the irony is, is that, the real spiritual significance I was looking for in the world, the real magic, I was not, I, um, drugs would be off limits for me. Like if I wanted that thing, I had to do it without ultimately. So that was, you, that's okay. You, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Are you sober now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not super sober, but I, I mean, I had I had like a miniature nervous breakdown, and I'm saying I'm saying that in quotes. It wasn't a real one, but I realized at one point. Wait, when was the last time I took hallucinogenics? Like, yeah. I kind of had to stop doing that because of like my dance career. Because you couldn't, you know, like whenever I took acid, um, you know, like as a as an older adult, like I, you know, maybe it was because it was crappy drugs or something. But I felt like my it took a few days for my tendons to get reattached to my bones you know right, what i mean right but i think that's true for a lot of artists generally i mean i think some of the greatest psychedelic music wasn't produced on the psychedelic right it's a reflection of the experiences yeah right? like like too much like when i first heard that that song too much to dream which is like the title of, oh, of yes. one of your books i mean i just i couldn't believe how great that song was and i heard that like probably around the time I was just beginning to take acid, maybe before, you know, like, yeah, it was, you know, on, on the radio with like the Carpenters and the fucking Osmonds and stuff. Exactly. And they, every so often they'd slip in something amazing, right. you know, 13 floor elevators or something. Oh, yeah. 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 
yeah, just all all of that, all of that stuff. I mean, how, how do we even begin to explain this shit to these kids today? I mean, doesn't the music the music fucking sucks today? I'm, I I refrain from saying that for so long because I felt like um, maybe I'm just getting old. But I, I mean, I am getting old. But I was <laughs> I gotta say I was right on the money. There's, I mean, there's some good music coming out, but it just seemed like there was a plethora of much better music going on for decades at the same time that the sappy pop was. Yeah, I need, I need to find that. There's got to be some like really good, good bands that are just like not commercialized, or maybe that's it. Maybe we just, um, you and I and other people that are like within our age range, age range are. Um, Grew up in a time before everything became so, so absolutely commercially product oriented. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, again, I think some of the, you know, some of the occult in music, especially in the 80s, was very contrived, you know, and and, and, and sort of, you know, pasted onto it um, for the purposes of, selling but there was still underlying that still seemed to be amazing rock and roll <laughs> like anyways you know and it yeah. seems like it's harder now to you know it's like to bands like a lot yeah whatever you know i mean there's a great like moments with ozzy even ozzy osbourne where you know after a show where he's you know coming down uh, from the throne and the and the fireworks and he has his upside down cross staff and you know, he has this cape and everybody has this experience. And then they come and they talk to him after the show. Ozzy, do you, you know, do you worship the devil? He's like, I, I just like Boris Karloff movies, man. You know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't make it less of this thing we're talking about, this transformation of consciousness for him and the audience when it's happening. So magic is still real in that regard, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Let's take another little music break and then I want to ask you a lot more questions. Peter Biebergal. Do you um do you know of a band called Twin Temple? Have you have you um listened to them or heard yes, of them? Yes, are they the, the oh I see I'm confusing them with a band called Sabbath Assembly that does process church type ritual. Oh music. wow. Ha ha. No, t- Twin Temple does um they do like they call it satanic doo-wop. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I have heard them, yes. The girl, the girl, the singer has an amazing voice and they, they like, you know, they, their whole look is astounding. She looks like a, you know, a wonderful B-movie witch and, um, you know, that the music's really great. You would love them. 
Um, yeah, I think that that's another thing that we sort of lose a little bit of is the spectacle, you know, of of rock. So it's great to hear that bands are still doing that. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the big light shows and everything, but it even seems like Madonna, Madonna's um, Super Bowl thing where she came out like, you know, the um, like the tarot, like in full tarot card garb. Yeah, you know that um, for for this spring, um, Christian Dior's entire um, haute couture collection is all based on tarot. Well, we're seeing that revival happening now, right? Or at least, oh, yeah, completely. Yes. What do you think? What do you think and... about all the witchy stuff? That's like how how trendy um, witchcraft is right now. So my very good friend, Amy Hale, who's a, a practitioner scholar, she often says, you know, it's always happening. It's not the only revival is that it's becoming more seen by the mainstream. So people are always practicing, right? There's always communities oh, yeah. of practice, right? I think what we're seeing now is what we saw at in many ways, the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century in the 60s, even with New Age in the 80s, is during these times of, uh, you know, social, political upheavals of some kind, people, and it's not just a matter of people looking for personal power, it's people seeing that the systems in place aren't functioning like they should or they assume they should. And so they have to look beyond those systems for for something that feels like it uh, makes sense. And so you push up against what is considered mainstream. Now, the problem is, or maybe it's not a problem, but then that thing becomes kind of mainstream. So what, in some ways, it just is more people are exposed to it, right? Um, Pam Grossman, who I know you've had on, no, I haven't had her. Oh, you haven't had Pam on yet? Oh, Pam, okay. Pam, you have to get on this podcast. Yeah, she's great. I'll yeah. send you an Instagram <laughs> DM. Because <laughs> I think she actually turned me on to you originally. Um, so Pam's a good friend of mine. And one of the things, you know, that's important about what she does is, you know, she says, you know, this, the witch, this new witchcraft thing, this new witchy movement is for everybody. Like there's no, like the, the, the 15-year-old on Instagram who's lighting candles, leave her alone. Like, let her do her thing. You know, she's just figuring it out like we were figuring it out when we were 14 and 15. Yeah, every, yeah. everyone needs to be able to, to do their own thing like like that. And, um, you know, but there, there, there was like some, you're on Twitter, right? right? Yes. So you know about like occult Twitter and astro Twitter. And <laughs> right. I mean, there, there was like some TikTok, um, video like last year about um someone that was trying to curse the moon oh. <laughs> that was like a huge huge outrage everyone's like oh they don't know what they're talking about yeah. some teenage kid and it's like whatever i mean i feel like some of the shit that we did when we were younger if there was social media like i know uh, personally i would still be incarcerated you know like the hippies tried to levitate the pentagon oh my god i know so that's what crazy. you know we're, we're, with like 50,000 people there. Yeah, Ram Dass was there. Yeah, Allen Ginsberg. I mean, yeah. everybody was there. Yeah, Allen Ginsberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe Ram Dass was there. Yeah, Allen Ginsberg. And it was all, um, 
what's his name? Uh, Abby Hoffman was the guy who instigated it. Have you? Okay, so speaking of that, um, have you ever have you ever seen um, ghosts or apparitions or or anything like that? Because you you live in a really haunted area of the the country, Boston. And Massachusetts and New England is so old and has so much witchy history. Like, have yeah, you, there's a you, lot of it, there's definitely that. You know, autumn here is probably one of the greatest. Like, that's probably one of the reasons why I'll never be able to really move forever out of New England because of fall. You know, it's yeah. just the most magical thing here. Um, you know, my, I've had experiences. Um, particularly when I was younger and, um, and imbibing. So those are always hard to parse, right? Because you are more open to things in some ways, but you're also more open to bullshit. <laughs> so it's hard to, you know, to always- Well, you don't understand. There wasn't a lot of information about- That's right, exactly. Either. Um, and um, I, so I've, I've not had, unfortunately, like direct encounters with something like a, a spirit. Have you had like oh, direct yeah. oh my God, yeah. I live in a, a, my house that I live in out here in LA is like, was built in 1911 and a fucking portal opened up on my ceiling one night. And it was, it was like, I just, I just like pinged away. This, this story is actually in, in my book, Rock and Roll Witch, um, which is coming, coming out seen um i just i opened my eyes and um i mean i just pinged awake i wasn't scared but like just suddenly i was wide awake and there was this like mist like a radiator fluid green colored mist swirling around on my ceiling and i'm completely blind without my glasses so i was looking at it and i was groping for my glasses think at first i thought it was just when your eyes are adjusting to the oh dark, yeah yeah like the air is moving and then um so I finally grabbed my glasses off the nightstand and then I thought, oh, that must be the light coming off the smoke detector, which was mounted behind my bed. So I turned and the light was on, but the light was red, not green. And so then it started um, like swirling a little more and I was like, okay, I'm going to get up in case I'm actually really dreaming this. You know, I went to the bathroom, I, um, you know, I peed, I washed my hands, I put on a hand lotion, the light was on, I flushed the toilet and I came back into bed and I sort of crawled crawled back into um, my bed and just like, I didn't even look at the ceiling. I just crawled there like facing the bed. And then I turned over on my back, but my eyes were closed. And in my head, like it sort of split into two voices, not in a schizophrenic way, but one of them yeah. was, so you're just gonna go to sleep without checking to see if that thing's on the ceiling? And the other <laughs> part of it was like, yeah, it'll be okay. And then the other voice was like, wait, are you fucking high? <laughs> and, so then I opened my eyes and it was still there. And I was like, well, what do you do? And it started swirling faster and faster. And so then I was like, maybe I should say the Lord's Prayer. And then I, I kind of said, dearly beloved. I was thinking this in my head. And then uh, the voice was we like, are you gathered. Sing it? that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's <laughs> Yeah. And then I was like, wait, wait, what's the Lord's Prayer? How come I don't know this? Like, what's wrong with me? Who doesn't know the Lord's Prayer, you know? And then I was finally looking at it and it really started speeding up. And at that point I started to feel sort of panicked because this was like really, really real, you know? And then um, 
I was like, should I just tell it to leave? Should I say it out loud? And then uh, without even, like, I've never said anything like this before. And maybe this came from me and my horror movies when I was younger, but this just flew out of my mouth. I said in like a really, I can't yell it this loud here. It's going to distort, but I said it really loud. In the name of Jesus Christ, you have to leave now. And all of a sudden there was this huge, like, like crashing clap noise. And, um, a portal, like it started as a tiny dot and then it came really big and the stuff started swirling around so fast. And then it, it split into two and went into two directions, came down, encompassed my whole bed, went back up into the portal and then it slammed shut with like the loudest noise I've ever heard. And at that point I was at the top of my lungs screaming, oh my fucking God. How long ago was this? Well, this was like, I don't know, probably like, six or seven years ago. And what made you think that it was um, not benevolent? I didn't think it was benevolent. I realized uh, when I got out of bed, I realized I was hypnotized in, into like not looking at it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I it wasn't necessarily it. a bad thing. No, it, it wasn't necessarily bad, but when that other shit happened, it was horrifying and so that yeah, I woke yeah. up and I turned on every appliance of in course the house, yeah, exactly all the lights and then finally around 9 30 I in the morning when it would have been light out for hours I went and I napped again and then a little while after it the neighbor who's who lives in the front part of the house came over and said um do you think our house is haunted like this was apropos apropos of, of nothing and I went oh yeah it's definitely haunted and he's like um why do you why do you think and think so? And I said, Well, why do you think so? And he said, Well, I, I've been hearing voices and footsteps and and I was like, Yeah. And then he's and, and then he said, Well, what made you think that? And I was like, A lot of things, but and then I looked at him and this guy had just moved in. I didn't know him that well, but yeah, yeah. I, I told him like the whole story that I said here. And he goes, Why didn't you call me? And I was like, Oh yeah, like I was really gonna call someone that had just moved in and said at three thirty in the morning, a portal just opened up on my ceiling. I mean, like, and then he said, "Well, if it happens again, let me know." And I said, "Okay." And has anything like that happened? No, but other stuff's happened. Like we, um, a couple of months ago, I was here with my friend Greg. This was like right after Halloween, but we still had tons of bags of candy corn that we were you know, panic buying in case it got off the show. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so we were sitting here and um, I was sitting at the at the kitchen table and he was sitting at this other desk across just working on stuff. He was on his phone and I was writing something and I smelled pipe tobacco and he had recently started smoking again in pandemic after not smoking. And I looked up and he said, are you smoking a pipe now? And then I realized he didn't have anything lit. And um, he and he said, why? And I was like, I just smell pipe smoke really heavy, you know, which is like scents or one of the ways that ghosts manifest. And he said, no, I, you know, I don't smell anything. And then a second later, he was like, whoa, like that. And then, and then it kind of traveled through and just went out the open screen door. And, but it felt really cold in the room, which is also a total sign of spirits. So then we just kind of went back to what we were doing. And then a little while later, I smelled it again. And this was like, this was also at like two or three in the morning, but he's, he's completely clean and sober. And I hadn't even had a drop to drink that night, you know, yeah. I smelled it again. And so he's like, um, if, 
if you're if if there's someone really here, let us know. We don't just want to smell you. And so there was two packs of candy corn, like those big brocks, like pounds yeah, yeah. Packs of candy corn sitting on top of my my microwave. We both watched as one just like lifted up really fast. I'm not even gonna say levitated because it just went up and then it just went boom and landed on the kitchen counter and and so then we got out like, you know, Sage and Palo Santo, but then also we were, you know, like trying to um, say, who is this? Tell us your name. And this is going to sound so fucking stupid, but I have, I have a Ouija board mouse pad and I oh, didn't want yeah. to go up in the living room to, to dig out one of my Ouija boards. So I, I had a pendulum on the Ouija board mouse pad and it spelled out his name and stuff. And then, and then like, after that, like I, I smelled the spirit. Oh, I just saw a black cat walk by. Yeah, that's Zeke. Yeah, mine, mine was in here. One of them was in here, like taking a shit a little bit earlier, and I was hoping that the audience didn't hear the litter box scratch. Oh, scratching. That's really <laughs> funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's anyway. very funny. Anyway, yeah. yeah. But so it does my- seem like those experiences are extremely local. I, you know of those like that phenomena that I feel like the, the, the deeper, the, the kinds of experiences that I've had that I would that feel um, are that those other kinds of magical experiences happen. So spirit encounters tend to, you know, like, like you're saying can sort of be localized, but encounters that feel magical usually for me have happened between another person, right? Yeah. Um, in some, um, in in some um, musical venue, often in a lot like certain musical venues, right? Um, I had an experience where I was introduced to a child that I was told uh, by its mother was a bodhisattva. He was three years old, and while she was telling me the story of him being a bodhisattva and how the the monks had come from Tibet to try to um, bring him back, you know, to live in the temple when he was still a child and the whole story. And now I'm not Buddhist, but while she was telling me this story, I went into a trance state. I And there was the truth of what she was saying became a physical feeling that I was experiencing. Now, even when the story, when she was done and everything sort of went back to normal, um, it didn't make me, like I wasn't now a Buddhist suddenly, but I knew that he was a Bodhisattva, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I knew it, you know? Um, so those I find, you know, when those kinds of transmissions between people, um, are can be extremely um like they're it's it's irrational right i don't and i don't need to try to figure out i mean i think that that's one of the main things that's important about my work and and why i i feel you know blessed to connect with all the different kinds of people like you and and pam and all these folks around um the social media talking about this is because it seems that at least for me i'm not trying to prove or disprove anything i just want to talk about the experiences right i just want to investigate and 
and think about and experience them. So when I'm writing a book, say like Strange Frequencies on um, spirit photography, the purpose of that is not to say whether or not it's literally true or literally false. And so I just believe that those moments of enchantment happen in these more ambiguous places, in these liminal places, right? And they especially happen in extreme conditions, especially like like a rock and roll concert. Um, but I think that it often gets me, um, I sometimes lose, I, I get into trouble sometimes because there are some, some of my readers or some of the people that I know or people who've read my work want me to be either more definitively skeptical or more definitively saying this is true. And I just, I have not, it's not the work and I'm not really even interested in having that debate. Like you yeah, really want to have a debate about does God exist? Is that even an interesting question? You know, the more interesting questions are what does it mean to engage with the holiness or the divine or what does happen when you meditate? What are your, what's happened? What kind of dreams do you have that produce, you know, experiences that you take in, into your life? How does that manifest as art? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, yeah, I'm glad that you're in the quote, quote, liminal, liminal space about that because like, it's, it's just sort of like, like objectively reporting on it, you know, and there's some things that are so wild, like, you know, you can't deny that it really happened, but then who cares about whether it was real or just perceived by the yeah, people. Or measurable, because you can't reproduce those kinds of experiences, no, you can't. right? You can't. So the idea that you could then create a scientific process by which those that could be happen over and over again, first of all, I don't even know why you want to do that. It would, you know, um, because I do think that what makes these things, those experiences like you've had special is that they're glitches, you know? It's like, yeah. it's a glitch. And when we're present and we can be open to experiencing those glitches, like that's, what a gift, right? That's that's the amazing thing. Because a lot of times if you're so closed off to it, even when it's right in front of you, you may just not perceive it. Now my, my whole life, um you know, without going into a bunch of other experiences, because that's what my book is about. Like it kind of like when I was, I wrote this whole book in pandemic. And when I was just like making a list of like, you know, stories of things that had happened to me, I, I, there's been so much stuff that could only be described as like batshit or supernatural, like yeah. so many synchronicities, so yeah, many. Like, yeah. So what's, what's like one of your, um, like prime moments of synchronicity. Do you have one that just comes to God, mind? Yeah, there's so many. Um, I mean, that's the kind of stuff like it, it, it's so beyond any, like to even use the word coincidence is yeah, not yeah, right. It's not right, right? It's something else. Um, I mean, a lot of them has to do with, um, you know, intersecting with people at certain times um, but there's two that stand out. Um, one is I was going back to some of the other things we were talking about. I had dropped acid. I was having a really bad time. Um, I was probably 18. I call, I, it was, and I had had this, you know, if this was not a new experience, but something was, went terribly wrong that night. 
and I was in Boston. I was trying to get on a bus to get home. You know, the world was like folding in on itself, you know? <laughs> so I called 911 and they came and um, brought me to the hospital. And it was this whole, it turned into a total, that was like, the, that was worse. Like oh, yeah. calling 911 on myself. <laughs> yeah. That was the worst. That was the bad. The decision to take acid was not the wrong choice. It was calling 911 was the bad, was the wrong decision. Anyways, it was just the whole experience in the hospital. And there was a moment where I was just having, I, they had to strap me down. And it was, just, I was in the emergency room with a curtain around me. And there was, I heard a voice from the other side of the curtain and I just very like smokers, you know, woman must've been in like her seventies, been smoking her whole life kind of voice, you know, um, raspy. And she said, Hey, Hey, you, do you wear glasses? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have glasses on. She said, take off your glasses. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, if you take off your glasses, your trip will be much more manageable. Just wow. So I took off my glasses and, you know, within, I mean, it was coming down and it was starting to come down anyways, you know? And then um, after I went around to look for her and there was nobody there and they, there's not, you know, and I'm sure there was somebody there, who knows, but the fact that this person connected with me in that way, understood what was happening without, having spoken to me, she saved me in that moment, you know? Um, so those are the things. How do you, you can't, again, could you replicate that? Could you even make up a story like that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those kinds of experiences. The other one I'll just, is a little bit more romantic, is um, my wife and I, um, we've been living together and I wanted to ask her to marry me. And I had this whole things set up where I contacted Harvard's um, uh, observatory and I wanted to see if I could bring her there. And while she was looking through the giant Harvard telescope, I could, I would ask her to marry me. So we would be in the big domed room and you know, the whole thing. And for some reason they agreed to let me bring her there to do this. And the, um, we're walking there and oh, no. So the day before that day, we were getting ready to go. It was a completely cloudy gray sky. And the guy called me and he said, you know, this isn't going to work. You're not going to see anything. It's, it's one of those nights where just it's too, it's too cloudy. So I said, well, we'll just come anyways. Cause it's already planned. I have the ring. I can't, can't change this now so we're walking along um and i started to say god i never ask for anything i don't make prayers that say you know can i have a new car or i want this job i never use any of the spirituals you know tap techniques for anything like that but i want this and we get to the observatory, she climbs up the ladder, perfectly crystal clear sky. Um, looked at the moon, asked her to marry me, 23 years later, we're still here. But the point is, is that 
I don't know if in the moment I believed that God would literally make this happen for me. But the magical moment is that I would even ask, right? That I felt that I could connect to the universe or to whatever in that way. And that connection, that moment where we sort of give up what's rational and just allow ourselves, um, you know, is it silly to say to participate in the mystery of things, you know? No, it's um, not silly. You know, things happen, right? Things happen. And usually that happens for me, like I said, when it, with art and music and literature and poetry. But when it can happen in those ways, like, you know. Yeah, it's just, yeah, this is, that's it. it that's just perfect. I think um, everyone in the whole in, entire world <laughs> it would be better off just to allow those things to happen um i'm so sad that like we're kind of at the time of oh, okay. <laughs> um we're at the time of the season of loving no. um yeah but um i i need to have you back on again do you have any more books coming out soon um i well i have a book coming out that's um is an anthology of short stories that I didn't write. It's all um, old pulp um, fantasy stories. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, and that, it's related to um, the, um, the one of the, the original designers of Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax, in um, one of the earliest D&D books had a list of stories that he said it influenced him. So this is a collection of some of those stories. What's it called? Appendix N. Appendix N, as in yes, the yeah, Appendix N, the letter N, the Eldridge Roots of D and D. Cool. When is that coming out? Uh, February twenty first, actually. Oh wow! Yes. Okay, fabulous. Uh, yeah, great. Um, um, cover art by the great um, artist Eric Roper, who's done. Uh, he did actually did the cover for Season of the Witch, but he's done um, album art for bands like Sleep and um high on fire and he's he's very well known sort of in that sort of uh stoner rock uh <laughs> yeah he's fantastic well it's been fantastic to talk to you you guys yes, it's that, been great that was peter biebergal who is just a fountain of information about rock and roll and the occult and drugs and psychedelia and synchronicity and you should get his books if you don't have them already um it was so good to talk to you peter you too it's been really fantastic thanks for having me all right i am the god of hellfire and i bring you fire
The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.